with a Hey guys, just wanted to start this episode because we just hit a really huge milestone. Uh, we just had our first 100 plays, uh, so we're just very appreciative and we wanted to thank you guys so much for listening and following along with us. Yeah, we really like this podcast and we're, we see a great future with it. And we just want to let you guys know we're really thankful for all the support we've been receiving and all the views and all that. This is something we enjoy and we're glad that you enjoyed it with us. Thank you. Welcome back to the Speed Demons Podcast. I'm your host, Charlie. And I'm your host, Evan. Welcome back, guys. Today we have a special episode because me and Evan both know this car brand, McLaren, but we really don't know much about its history, or we didn't. I mean, to me, in the beginning, they, they just popped out in 2010 out of nowhere, and they just started making supercars, but doing some research here, and now that I'm a new F1 fan, I get to see sort of their their roots, how they started, and I think it's really interesting, and you guys will find it really interesting, too. I mean, my favorite color is orange, and you can't go wrong with their papaya orange. No, you cannot. It's really it's really eye-catching. Do you actually know why they swapped the car to papaya orange? Actually, don't. It was They actually ran originally, you knew this, uh, with a green race car with a silver stripe? White stripe. White stripe. It's white with a green stripe. White with a green stripe. But they switched over to this papaya orange when Color TV came out so that you always knew that that was a McLaren going down the road. Huh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Well, how about we start from the beginning here with the the one and the only, the legendary founder, Bruce McLaren. So Bruce McLaren, he was born in Auckland, New Zealand, which is the capital of New Zealand. New Zealand. New Zealand. That's pretty good. Thank you. Well, we, we've gotten better since the uh, Australian cars. You're so right. We've we, 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 been practicing. We have been practicing. So in Auckland, New Zealand in 1937. <laughs> Jesus. 1937. 1937. And um, uh, he started out with cars as early as literally out the womb. He was with cars. So one thing, though, is special about him is he was actually diagnosed with purse disease, which left his left leg shorter than his right leg. And he had a limp his entire life. But that never stopped him from racing. The reason I actually got the, the two legs to be different, purse disease is when one of your balls and sockets is worn out from birth. Um. And the way they used to fix that back then is they would hang weights from your hips so that your hips would kind of even out over time. So he was confined to a hospital bed for what they thought was going to be only two months, but it turned into two years. Yeah. So within that time, Bruce McLaren spent a lot of time reading. And uh, he said in his autobiography that he spent a lot of his childhood maturing because he was confined to that bed. Hmm, that's it. That's actually really interesting. And we're actually going to see him being one of the youngest but most mature people in racing. A hundred percent. Let's start with his first race because he starts. He after that he's like right out there. Mm-hmm. So he 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 gets diagnosed with Parkinson's disease at like nine years old, and then and then two years in the bed, so he's eleven. But then by fourteen, in 1952, he participates in his first ever race, and it's a hill climb. Which is which is really really fun, especially, and it's also extremely difficult. Yeah, no kidding. And uh, this wasn't a hill climb with roads as we know today. This was on a beach. This was a hill climb that started on a beach on rural New Zealand, and his car was not the best car for for a hill climb. This was a is this is a restored Austin Ulster, and it was it was not it's not the best car on the grid. I think anyone could admit that. No, he himself had admitted that it was probably the slowest car he had ever driven. But with this real slow car, what did he do? He was able to really maneuver it exactly where he needed to. Mm-hmm. And what did he end up getting as his place? 
Numero uno. First place. First place in his first race at only 14. It's absolutely wild. I, I couldn't even imagine. I'm I'm 18 now, and I still couldn't imagine being able to do anything close to that at 14 even. But I think I could have pulled it through. You think you could have pulled it through? In, <laughs> no way. In a car that was maybe that. 20 years old that he had to restore himself well, on he a had, hill climb in he, rural New Zealand. Well, he had some of his help from his dad his dad actually owned a machine shop right yeah that's that's kind of the like area in which he grew up he always grew around his father and he was his father was a club racer so he grew around his father's workshop all the time and really developed a passion for racing i think at one point uh to get further into the racing scene his father became like a president or board member for the racing division in new zealand so that opened up a lot of opportunities for bruce early on yeah his father was really supportive of his racing and he wanted and it his father was pretty old when he got into the hobby, so when Bruce got into it, he wanted to see his son succeed while he was young. Yeah. He really really helped push him to the next level. Yes. And so for, at 14, eight years later, in not in uh, almost eight years later, in 1959, at age 22, he joins his first F1 team, mm-hmm. the Cooper Car Company. And the reason he only got to go join that Cooper race team is because they were choosing – people from foreign countries to go to Europe to race in F1 because they were looking for new talent. Yeah, it was, um, uh, he had a great performance in, in, with the Cooper car company. And he was, he was like, he was, he was exactly the Cooper car company. They were never the best like car company on the grid, sure, but they were, they were solid. And he, Bruce McCombs was able to push that car and get the results that the team wanted. You know what? Cooper sounds real familiar. They do because after F1, they went and made the Mini Cooper. The Mini Cooper, the, one of the most infamous British car manufacturers ever. Yeah, every it's it's even the term Mini is more like in tune with Mini Cooper. Like, yeah, than it is with small things. Yeah, it's, it's it's like when you search up Pitbull, the the Latin pop singer comes up before the dog. Yeah, pretty much. It is it, that's just how synonymous they are. But um, as an F one team, they weren't very well known. So. He was um, really noticed by his performance in the 1958 New Zealand Grand Prix when a driver, who some people might know, with the name of Jack Brabham. Brabham? Yes. No. Brabham. I like Brabham. Brabham. I've liked it. I'd like to say Brabham. My name is Jack Brabham. (laughs) No, it was Jack Brabham. Yeah. Uh, He he would later go on to found Brabham Racing, and he would also be um, a... he would also be Mr. McLaren's teammate for a little while, too. He would also act as a mentor for Bruce for a lot of his racing career. Because yeah. they were always hand-in-hand, hand, two New Zealanders going at it together. Yeah, they were really, uh, they were really, Bram really showed him, like, the ropes of the F1 team. Showed him how it was a lot different from club racing and really got him into it. Which actually would help Bruce become the youngest GP winner, um, excluding the Indianapolis 500, for almost 50 years. Yeah. 50 years he held that record. And he was the runner-up that season right behind his teammate, Jack Brabham. Yep. It was usually them were just one-two men, you know. Uh, and the first Grand Prix where they participated together, Jack Brabham actually held back at the finish line and let uh, Bruce McLaren take the number one spot. Yeah, no, I thought that was really sportsmanship. It, it was like, really noble of him to do so, let the young guy get this first win. Yeah, I thought I thought it was it was really, really neat when I read about that. So, Bruce McLaren, he races for Cooper for a while, and but after a while, he sort of starts to get burned out. Yeah, he's he want he sees um, Cooper is starting to like really fall back behind, and 
he wants to start his own company. So Bruce McLaren founds Bruce McLaren Racing LTD in 1963. Mm -hmm. And in 1965, he leaves Cooper to start building his own F1 race cars. He mainly left because he saw all the the competitors were using these 2.5 liter engines while Cooper was like, no, we need to stick with this 1.5 liter. So we know. And they weren't innovating. The thing is, starting a racing team is no easy feat. The biggest feat to overcome is money. And there wasn't a lot of money in F1 at the time. No, yeah, no, it was really bare bones. Drivers were barely just like scraping enough money just to live. But it's crazy because you look at modern day F1 and these guys are seen as superstars. They make millions and millions of dollars. Tens of millions even for the best racers. And back then you would be lucky to make a thousand shekels. Yeah, no, it was absolutely bare bones. But these drivers, they were doing it because they love racing. It was even more dangerous. Cars would just sputter out all the time. But they were racing because they loved it and they were great at it. Well, and back then, racers were also the engineers of their cars, too. Yeah, they had a real big say in what was in what was happening to their cars. Right, and their development in the cars would amount to the, how their achievement on the racetrack. Yeah, it was, un, it was undeniably a very equal, equal partnership. And Bruce McLaren knew this. Mm-hmm. He had a heavy involvement in the cars he wanted to make because he was, he was driving these cars, and he knew what had to be done to make them the best they could on the track. Right. So he starts this um, uh, company. Um, and the first McLaren he makes is called the M1A. And it was a, it was a prototype. They had three variations, the M1B and the M1C as well. Very innovative. Yeah, I know. As you can see, car, car manufacturers are very innovative with their titles. They, yes, yes. They really spend a lot of time to make sure it's really unique, something new. Right, something new, something to get people going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really, um, uh, it's really, really astounding. Okay, so the M1 series of race cars were in were like in development and testing and racing from 63 to 68. And they were actually very, very good. They used uh, various mid-engines from American brands like Chevy and Ford and Oldsmobile to deliver the power that they needed. I believe their first Can-Am car as well used an Oldsmobile-powered big block. Indeed it did. It was a, it was a V8 and it was really, really powerful. Mm-hmm. So this was um, – uh, it was – these were the first true McLarens, by far. And they got their first start in the 1966 season of the Can-Am racing season. Mm-hmm. Now, Can-Am is a, is a long, defunct version of racing. Think of F1, but no limits. Exactly. That F1, was Can-Am. no limits, and it's all throughout Canada and America. Yes. So it was really popular for a, for a long time. And Bruce McLaren thought, if there's anywhere I'm going to get my start, it's somewhere where I can um, uh, really exercise the full, full potential of my car. And we had mentioned that F1 wasn't making drivers or teams enough money. Can-Am and American racing series like the Indianapolis like or IndyCar, mm-hmm. those were the money makers of the time. Yeah, no, they really they they really draw in racers from all over the world because of just how much money there was to be made. So this was your place to make a name and make some cash. And they certainly did that. So in uh, in this 1966 season they honestly didn't do that good, but they had some really, really good designs. So they used a tubular space frame, which is kind of a very hollow frame that was extremely light, but still held the uh, consistency of a normal of a normal frame for a car. Similar to like pro cars uh, in drag racing that use full tube chassis or GT cars that do that as well. Exactly. So... With their best engine they used for this M1 series was a Chevy small block V8, 
and it was 350 cubic inches. It made 550 horsepower and 538 feet per pound of torque. That is no small feat for a small block engine. Small block engines only made 200 horsepower from the factory. Indeed. But Bruce McLaren knew what he was doing, and he knew how to put put those numbers up. And And he was using superchargers and turbochargers? Nope. He was not. All naturally aspirated. All NA, baby. It was as it was perfect. It was it was really quick, and so they and so after like that six six season and with this new Chevy engine that they they were so dominant, and at the end of their life and they were taken over Can Am by storm. They mm-hmm. people now people everywhere knew about them. It was McLaren, right? It was Bruce McLaren behind the helm, and he was really steering the ship in the right direction. At this point, McLaren had become a household name, so they needed an emblem to go along with that, so people could recognize him besides that bright orange character. Exactly. And um, uh, so they, after Can-Am and their success, they move into F1, which is what Bruce McLaren always wanted. He wanted to be an F1 team. Full stop. Yeah, there's F1 is the biggest status that you can get in racing. Uh, Can-Am, it was a great moneymaker. Indianapolis 500, one of the most iconic races of all time. But it doesn't compare to any F1 race. Mm-hmm. So their first F1 car that they used to race was the M2B. And this was the car we were talking about with that was white with the green stripe and its logo, which was the Kiwi bird. Kiwi bird is actually the national bird of New Zealand. It's a flightless bird at that. Yeah, Bruce McLaren really wanted to show that New Zealand pride because, you know, you see all these other com- companies like, you know, especially like Cooper, who is very proud to be British. Yeah, very. And um, uh, you just – and he wanted to bring some of that pride to New Zealand, give the fans that he knew who were, like, racing nuts in New Zealand some a team to root for. And he actually only paid 39 British pounds for that initial emblem or logo. Yeah, it was real cheap. I, I can't say that um, a Kiwi bird would be my first pick for a logo, but I then think again, it, we're not from New Zealand. Yeah, I honestly think it kind of looked nice. But I wouldn't put a bald eagle on my car, though. I mean, I might. I, I don't know. That seems a little tacky, but he was a proud New Zealander. He was a very, very proud New Zealander. And so he, um, uh, he, it was, it was good. And but it it wasn't that great if no. I'm being honest in F1. But they 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 had something. They knew they had something. So they're racing, and then 1970 hits. So Bruce McLaren gets into a crash. So he crashes his Can Am M8D on a on the Launt Straight at um, Goodwood Circuit. Um, he was actually testing uh, a new wing design for these Can-Am cars uh, because years past, they had been using very high-towered rear wings to get as much downforce as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, but regulations had stopped that for the next year because these high-towered wings were lifting the rear ends of the car, making them lose control. And uh, that day where Bruce was testing out how high he could put a spoiler before it, became illegal to use he suffered that fate exactly so when he's when he's driving on the straight the um, uh, entire wing just comes off yeah the whole rear end of the car supposedly lifts up and he loses control and yeah he actually crashes into a guard post uh that was freestanding but it was supposed to be demolished to make the course safer but just hadn't been yeah with the loss of the wing the downforce was the aerodynamic downforce was totally destabilized and he spun into the bunker and it killed him instantly 
Yes. Uh, sadly, at the age of only 32 years old. That's really crazy to stress that at 32 years old, this man had developed one of the most infamous racing teams in the world and hadn't hit age 40 yet. Yeah, it kind of really makes you sad to think about it because, you know, Enzo, even though he started really, really young and he everything, he still lived long enough to see his racing team become as glorious as they could be to be the team that he wanted to. But Bruce McLaren sadly died before he could even see the glory days. Thankfully, Bruce had a great uh, theory for running his business. Exactly. He didn't think that if you bought the best machines or bought the best materials that you would be successful. He believed in if you chose the right people, it would all fall in place. Yeah, I have I have a quote here from Bruce McLaren. So he had a friend, his teammate, Timmy Mayer, who died instantly from a crash. Yes. And I feel like these words that he said could also be applied to the greatness of Bruce himself. So on the news that he had learned that he died, he says, um, The news he had died instantly was a terrible shock to all of us. But who is to say that he had not seen more, done more, and learned more in his few years than many people do in a, in a lifetime? To do something well is so worthwhile that to die trying to do it better cannot be a foolhardy. It would be a waste of life to do nothing with one's ability, for I feel life is measured in achievement, not in years alone. Yeah, very powerful quote. Yeah. I don't know if it applies much to this modern age, but you can appreciate how much he was dedicated to racing. Yeah, it was really his whole life. Yes, and he didn't care if that was what took him. If anything, he preferred it that way. Yeah, I think so too. But uh, I will admit that, you know, I'm not going to put him on a pedestal. He had, you know, a daughter and he had a wife. And, you know, he participated in racing much later than most racing car drivers. He was 32. Mm -hmm. The average racing car driver is what, around 25-ish. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so he was definitely on his way out um of the sport yeah of the sport he's an iconic figure in racing yeah i will give him that 100 percent every day of the week but you know pushing the limits impacts more than just yourself yeah it really does but i think he knew the risks and uh, he knew the risks and you know it's yeah. just how it played out sad so after bruce's death his partner teddy mayer um took over the team and uh, in the years after Bruce's death, the team wasn't anything special, but they were able to get wins on occasion, and um, uh, with big, and so with like some big names, they've uh, they really tried to they gave like starts to some big names. So Dan Gurney, Peter Gethin, and um, uh, Jody Schechter, those are some big names in F1, and McLaren gave starts to all those guys, and um, uh, they were they were you know they're getting wins every now and then, but until 1975. Until McLaren signs James Hunt, um, they re is when they actually like maybe started to really start pushing the boundaries and get really good. If you've ever seen the movie Rush, a big Hollywood production, yeah, it actually talks about the rivalry between James Hunt and Nikki Lauda, mm -hmm. who we'll come to know a little bit later. Uh, very great movie. Yeah, no, it's a really good movie. Would highly recommend you watch it. It's got uh, what's his name? Not Liam Hemsworth. Uh, is it? Chris Hemsworth. Chris Hemsworth. And it's also got the other guy. I don't know his name. Uh, but he's also really good. He's a very good actor as well. I've but, seen him in a lot of stuff. Yes. He's a great a great movie, though. I'd highly recommend you watch it. Yeah. It would also it will also tell you more about this era in McLaren and Ferrari's history. It'll also tell you about the intricacy of racing progression, moving up from lower class racing like F3, F2, all the way up until F1. 
Yeah, no, I think it's a really great movie. Would highly recommend. So this is kind of the what this movie talks about. In 1975, um, when Hunt um, raced against Nicky Lauda, and who was driving at Ferrari, and Nicky Lauda was extremely dominant at Fer- in Ferrari mm-hmm. at this time. He it was it was amazing. If you thought Bruce McLaren was a great engineer for his cars, Nicky Lauda might have been on par with that. Yes, he knew how to set up a car so it would be the most efficient it could possibly be on the racetrack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And before this, like Emma, we uh, we Emma McLaren had Emma finally had finally gotten their first WDC win, which is the World Drivers Championship. So it's when like the one driver gets the most points, and it also had signed a deal with Marlboro. And that's how they got their famous uh, Marlboro livery. So if you see an F1 car with a Marlboro livery on it, it's probably a McLaren. Do you actually know why the red color on the Marlboro car in person looks kind of orangey? But when you look at it on TV, it's red. I don't know. It was designed that way because TVs back in the 70s could not pick up reds in a perfect way. It's a very hard color to capture. Mm -hmm. So they kind of tricked the TV into showing that red by using orangey red so that the darker pigments would pop through the picture. Hmm, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, in that season, Hunt Alt, Hunt um, wins, barely wins against Nicky Lauda. It's a great race. And um, uh, it was, it would really uh, signify um, uh, the dominance of McLaren. It would show that they're not just a midfield team. You know, we are here to stay. We are good. And we're really pushing the limits. But James Hunt was one and done. He won that uh, championship, and he was like, "See ya, I'm out." Yeah, and no, I know. No, that was it. Yep. He he was ready. He, but I mean, that's sort of how James Hunt was. Yeah. No, he he accomplished his goal, and he was done. Yeah. No, I think we we could probably do an episode on him, and I think to tell you more about him, we'll see. As a person. Um. So the rest of these uh, of these late of these late seventies had um a lot of driver movement, just people moving around, but. They still had really good results, and um, uh, so the the um the eighties begins right, and here comes uh this new new engine plan. These uh these one point five liter these sorry these two point five liter engines are just not cutting it anymore. No, these they are they are sluggish and they are old because people have been using these 2.5 liters since like for, 66 for yeah 20 30 years it's time for a change it really is so what happens is mclaren takes them a techniques d'avant-garde i think i'm saying that I think right. it's just avant-garde techniques well no but they spell techniques with a q oh so it's yeah. different that's what it means it's exactly fr- it's more french that way yeah exactly okay it's like Devant, so it's like D apostrophe A V A N T. Right, right, sure. Yes, and then guard is spelled G A R. Okay, all right, all right. There you go. I, I have to explain myself. Here. You spell I cup next. I P O R S C H E Porsche helps them also design the engine too. That is not how you spell I cup, but okay. <laughs> um, no, but Porsche did actually help McLaren. Yeah, they did. So they combine with Technique de Vanguard to create what is called the TAG engine. And this is a very, very crucial part to the Formula One um, Formula One car that they're going to use for a long time. Not to get sidetracked, but that TAG engine mentioned uh, also relates to the TAG Hauer car in F1 we see today. It does. It really does. Because it uses a similar power plant, uh, and it's the same kind of founding companies. Indeed, it does. 
It's um, uh, it was a 1.5 liter turbocharged engine, like some of the other like really dominant teams like Ferrari had at the same time. But turbo engines were very uh, expensive to develop because they'd all been naturally aspirated from years prior. Yeah, this was like literally a blank sheet of paper they're starting with. Right. So they they really took a gamble on this one because they knew if they wanted to um, uh, like catch up with the big dogs because like their 2.5 was not a bad engine at the time. No, it, it wasn't. I mean, it was one of the fastest racing engines out there. Yeah, but the 1.5s with the turbo, they knew it was faster, so they had to go for it. Yes. And they took a risk, and it paid off. It paid off heavily because in 1984, when this engine is ready, they signed Prost because Prost was an earlier driver before. Mm-hmm. But here he returns from Renault to McLaren back, and he dominates. And they actually won in 1984 with uh... – his teammate, Alan Prost's teammate, Nicky Lauda, Indeed. he actually went from Ferrari. He took a two-year hiatus. I believe he uh, went to Brabham's team for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but came back in 1982, and they won in 1984. Yeah, and they won, and they won with 12 GP wins and 2.5 times the amount of points as Ferrari, who was in second place. Yeah. Just so imagine that today, that dominance. It, that doesn't happen today. The scoring is usually so close, and then that was just so far apart. It was it was it was crazy. It was literally unheard of. So they win the they continue the streak in 84, 85, and 86. Yeah. And then they don't they don't win in 87, but in 88, Senna gets hired. And Senna and Prost are now in the same team. This is um uh, and this will lead to like a this really huge rivalry. This is the biggest rivalry in racing, in my opinion. This is there is definitely a very fair argument to be made. Because Senna, the Senna and Prost rivalry is legendary, mm-hmm. especially because they're literally racing for the same team. Yeah, no, because that because those differences in points were so great between the second place runner Ferrari and McLaren. McLaren cars were the only competitive ones on the field, so the only person you were going against when you were racing was your teammate. Yeah, and that w- couldn't be stated more for Prost and Senna. They were duking it out every race, just trying to squeeze over just a little bit more and. Some sometimes the audience loved it, and other times they really hated it because some moves were really, really contentious. The thing is, the Brazilian-born racer Ayrton Senna, he was the crowd favorite. Yeah, he was. Uh, he was really. He had this underdog story, being from Brazil, and people loved him there. And yeah. just so dominant they were, they would be like they were competing, and in one season they won fifteen out of the sixteen races on the whole thing. Yeah. The only time they didn't lose was because I'm a... It was out on a technicality, right? Yeah, it was a technicality. Senna had, um, had a racing incident. Yes. And so they both use very dangerous driving tactics against each other. You know, Senna would sometimes push Prost really close to the wall, and then Prost would try and retaliate by him uh, trying to undercut him. They were constantly butting heads on the racetrack and off, actually. Yeah, no, it was a really, really contentious rivalry. They wanted to prove to the world that they were... Who was the best? Well, uh, coming from that, uh, Alan Prost switched to Williams' team in 92, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so Williams started to become the more dominant player in F1 at that time. Indeed. And right before that, um, Senna actually did one of probably one of the most contentious race, racing incidents of all time. Yeah. It was um, uh, Senna and Prost in the, um, uh, in the race right before the final race. And Senna had done the math, and he knew that if Prost didn't finish this race, he had no chance of winning the championship. So what Senna does is he crashes into Prost on the first turn intentionally. Yeah, This upset the racing community 
like crazy. It was a dirty move, and he knew it. Yeah, everyone knew it. Yeah, they knew what he was doing. But, I mean, I wouldn't say you got to commend the guy, but, you know, I mean, at least he thought it through. Yeah. It wasn't like he just crashed into him because he was bad. It's true. But, I mean, some could say that's even worse if it was intentional. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, it was it, – it, that was one of, like, the most crazy um, racing incidents. I think it's worth to, uh, mentioning – why these cars were so good at what they did. Um, they, McLaren team actually hired uh, airplane engineers to develop their cars because they knew most, the most about the best materials, about downforce, and all that. That's why these cars were so dominant. But they were also aided by incoming technology from that field. So uh, in the 70s, they introduced a material called malite, which is really just balsa wood, one of like the most fragile woods out there sandwiched between two aluminum alloy sheets to make this very thin, flexible, but very rigid uh, composition of metals that was very good. But this new uh, MP4-1 F1 car that was so dominant used carbon fiber. Yeah, it was. they were really ahead of the curve when it came to technology for like materials they were using. Carbon fiber was not non-existent at the time no it was not seen in any racing or any cars for that matter yeah it was really just used for like airplanes industrial equipment whatever like really was needed right but it was never thought of as like a racing as like part of racing now carbon fiber has taken over the racing world by storm right it's impossible to see a race car it's, nowadays without it it's probably the best material to build any car out of undoubtedly but, i mean it's just the light it's it's lightweight it's rigid and it flexes enough to where it can bend but it won't break it's quite literally the best material out there undoubtedly it is so strong and it is really perfect so we've talked a little bit about the dominance of um uh, of mclaren cars here and we're going to start seeing some of that um uh, that williams dominance coming up shortly so we're just gonna leave you guys here and do a quick break all right So we talked about how Ayrton Senna is considered one of the greatest racing drivers in history. Yeah. yeah. Um, but in 1994, he moves the Williams team from McLaren. Indeed he does. Williams was dominating the field in the early 90s, undoubtedly. Yeah, their aero techniques were just un- unbeatable. They knew, they knew aerodynamics more than anyone else at the time. Right, and it definitely played into their winning streak. Um, Alan Prost actually denied Ayrton Senna from joining in 92. Because he put specifically in his contract that he got to choose his teammate, whether or not he could veto them. Wow. So it wasn't until 94 when Alan Prost left the team that Ayrton Senna was allowed to join. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, was, uh, he, saw where the, he saw the writing on the wall and he knew that he, if he wanted to maintain being considered one of the best drivers on the grid, or if not the best driver on the grid, he had to move to Williams to really prove that. Right. This is common in F1, just period. you got to look for the best team out there, and they're the ones that you want to get your butt in their seat. Yeah. I mean, we see this with Daniel Ricciardo. We see this with uh, Verstappen. Mm-hmm. Just like the best drivers want the best car, regardless of the team. Yeah. But, I mean, it's different, though, because McLaren is sort of a family company. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not the biggest dog in racing. Yeah. Money-wise, at least. They're not owned half by Fiat. Right. They're they're not even producing road-going cars. They're just a racing team. Indeed. That's all they really are. So they're only getting their money from racing, mostly in the U.S., like we talked about. But uh, so they get this money, and they get this good car, and then they just get taken out by this smaller team, mm-hmm. Williams. Yeah. 
literally came out of nowhere from England by this random guy named Fred Williams who doesn't even have his own car company. No. It's kind of like McLaren in that way. Yeah. Uh, but it was kind of disappointing to see this glorious reign in the 80s come to kind of a harsh halt in the 90s. Indeed. Uh, since then, McLaren really hasn't been doing very well uh, in F1. Nah, they've had they've had some uh, good they've had some stuff here and there with like Honda engines and other stuff, and they've tried. They really have tried, but they've and they they actually did succeed a bit much later on in this timeline. But recently, and like in the nineties, not too much. They did not have much luck. Um, they used to be top of the field, getting pole position fairly often, and these days they're lucky to get in the midfield. Yeah, that's really how that's. Sad to see. And but. the thing is, it's not even a matter of budget anymore because they have a lot of money going into the teams. It's just that they don't quite know how to develop a good car. Yeah. But there's something that we did gloss over a little bit. In 1992, racing isn't the only thing that's happening at McLaren. No. There's a little thing called uh, the McLaren F1. Indeed. Which, okay. Just to preface, uh, we're going to share our favorite McLarens uh, a little bit later. But we... Both me and Evan agreed not to choose the McLaren F1 because it's unanimous that it is the best, best McLaren. By far. The, the first and the best. It um, A very good argument can be made that this defined the decade. It defined the decade and defined what hypercars could be. Yeah. We, we knew what sports cars were. We had Corvettes. We had like Maseratis. We had Ferraris. But hypercars from sports cars is a crazy jump. Yeah, there is a people all the time make arguments that this is the first hypercar ever. Yes. And I think that you could also you could make a very fair argument that it is. Well, I mean, it's the first road going car. First car. I mean, production car to use carbon fiber monocoque design just like the F1 chassis of the MP4-1. Uh, yeah, when they say F1 and the, when they call it the McLaren F1, it really is the McLaren F1 cuz they use so much inspiration from F1 all like the uh, ingenuity that they've taken from the sport they've put into this car. Not only is it the most powerful naturally aspirated engine like in a road-going car ever, and it's it's been surpassed now, but it held that record for a fairly long time. Yeah. But uh, it drove like an F1 car. There were no driver assists. No, it was you. You were it was you and the car and the road. That was it. There was no power steering, no ABS. There was no steering assist, no stability control. There was nothing. This was a driver's car, not a car to be driven in. Some would regard it as a death trap, but it was a driver's car. It was the driver's car is just what we call death trap. Keyword key driver's car, not a weekender car. Not you, know. you 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 had to know what you were getting into. You had to be a driver. And the people who drove these loved these cars. Mm-hmm. It has been unanimously like everyone unanimously who has yeah. owned one. Loves it. Mr. Bean actually had a, a McLaren F1, the actor. Really? Yeah, I think he had a great one. But he, he totaled it, but he got it fixed. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, I guess that, that's just how powerful that thing is. But uh, it's crazy because I bet Mr. Bean bought it back when it came out. Uh, and when it came out, these cars were $800,000 to almost a million dollars. Yeah. Not cheap by any means, even for back then in the 90s. Yeah, of course. But... If you look at their value today and why they're regarded as one of the best like cars ever made, mm-hmm. just period, it's going for close to $10 million Easy. at open auction. 
I mean, it's not even a competition. No, it's always. And it, this is not like, oh, well, we're, we think it's there. I said, no, this is where it sells. Oh, we, we might sell it around nine. You know, No, it's it's going double digits because yeah. it's so sought after. It's just, it's so rugged. It's so raw. That performance that you can't really feel in a modern supercar, hypercar, even today. You can't get away with it because of the harsh safety restrictions. I mean, it, it was a death trap but it was the best death trap that could be made. Yeah, it, you could make some very fair comparisons to the F40 with this thing, but I think it's even better than the F40, if you ask me. I mean, that's a tough debate. Don't tell Ferrari guys that. I, I won't. They, they consider that the best car. I don't know, McLaren guys might be on the other side. Yeah. I um, will say I like the F1's looks better. That's true. Uh, but performance-wise, I don't know. Also had a, um, a three. It had a three-seat system, which is... Super weird. When they say three seat, it means you had one seat in the middle, like an F one car, and then two half seats on the side. Yeah, it's. Re- I think the design looks really funky. I w- I could just imagine three people just trying to stuff themselves in there. Uh, I actually read um, uh, an article where Mr. Bean was the actor. I forgot his name, but uh, he says the one of his favorite days he's ever lived was the day he bought that car and he had his two kids on the side of him and they just went on a road trip. That sounds awesome. It sounds amazing. They're kids, granted, so they could fit. Yeah. You know, if they were teens, they might have been a little squished. But, but yeah, no, that, that it, it is – we highly recommend that you take a look at some of the stats yourself just to prove what we're saying here because this is extremely, extremely fast. But uh, it ain't their fastest car. No, it's not. No, no. We're going to be talking about some real fast cars now. We're going to be talking about our favorite McLarens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Who started last time? I forgot. Oh, jeez. I don't know. Uh, Australia. I believe you shared first. I did. Yes. So I will go first this time. So we said no McLaren F1. So naturally, I chose the McLaren P1. Oh my God, the P1! The natural predecessor to the McLaren F1. Successor? Huh? It's successor, not predecessor. Uh, that's what I meant. Uh, it's the natural successor. It was the most raw car of the time, uh, made from 2013 to 2015. Kind of a short run for any car model. Uh, they only made 375 of them, uh, but it came with some very, very, very impressive stats. Really? Gone, gone are the days of a super powerful NA engine, and we switched to a twin turbo 3.8 liter V8, Woo! high compression plus boost, and that was aided by a 132 kilowatt uh, electric motor, giving it some crazy acceleration numbers. I mean, it was able to go to uh, zero to 62 miles an hour in 2.8 seconds. Wow, that is really fast. That is incredibly fast. Your average car today maybe is six seconds. Mm-hmm. That, and that's like the average. Yeah, that's like average sports car number. Yeah. But it didn't just have a really powerful engine. It wasn't just made of carbon fiber. No, no, no. It had F1-style systems in place, much like the LaFerrari and the Porsche 918 at the time, the yeah. Holy Trinity, as some regard them. Uh, it had a DRS system. Much like the F1 cars, it was able to drop their rear wing to get some better straight line uh, speed and acceleration, as well as their own developed iPass system. Uh, this was brand new technology where you had a button on your steering wheel, which when you clicked it, your electric motor would go into overdrive and would give you an extra boost of power when you needed it when you're driving. Sort of like a nitrous system? It was pretty much electric nitrous. <laughs> That's pretty cool. It's pretty awesome. So, I mean, 
we can go into specs all day. It's, you know, 217 mile per hour top speed, you know, 664 pound feet of torque, 900 BHP. I mean, we could go for days and days and, you know, we could talk about who's got the better pick. But at the end of the day, you're not going to go wrong with the McLaren, the P1. Okay, well, while Charlie is uh, driving around in his grandpa's sports car, I chose something a little bit more modern, something a little bit more sleek and aerodynamic. That's uncalled for. <laughs> it's funny, though, and it's a good transition. So I actually do have to say that I'm, uh, while, while we, were, we, were, we were doing a little bit of research on our cars together, and I'm a... Uh, and he's like, and he's trying to guess what uh, car I picked. We usually give each other like one or two guesses, uh, just just for fun, which is which is actually kind of hard for McLaren because there's only like five or six cars. Yeah, there's not that many out there. So he's just like, mentioning, and he's like, we're just we're debating, and then he he somehow lands on the car that I picked, but I don't tell him it right away. No, and- no, I say I was just talking about McLaren because they don't really have many cars, but I was like. There's a couple I don't like, and one of them is the McLaren Speedtail. I'm not a fan of it. No, and then he and then he talks how much he hates it for about like three minutes while I'm just staring at the McLaren webpage about the Speedtail. And then I just am like, Charlie, you don't know what you're missing here because the McLaren Speedtail is so fast. It has a zero, zero to 106, 186 mile per hour time in 12.8 seconds. Zero to 186 miles per hour. What about the zero to 60? They don't list that on their website because uh, they don't need because to. Because the P1, which is five years older, probably beats it. I guess we'd have to take it to a drag strip sometime. Test yeah, it out. you and me are going to drive a P1 in a speed. Zone. man can dream, okay? Right. A man can dream. Okay, continue. So this thing has an even bigger engine, a 4.0 liter twin turbo V8 with a, a parallel with some uh, – and it and it has a parallel e motor, which it makes it a hybrid. Mm. So it has 848 pounds per feet of torque, and it has wireless trickle charging to to charge the um uh, the hybrid part of the car. Hey Evan, why does it need a trickle charger? Because it's a hybrid. And what do hybrids do? They um are electric. And they help drive the car. And lose charge over time. They do. But you don't need to even plug it in because it charges itself. So that's not even something you need to worry about. You don't need to plug it in. It charges itself. So, like, who even cares? It's literally it's literally a self-charging car. It's great. Well, you do need to plug it in, but it is it recharges itself with, like, an external battery. Indeed. And it – although it does take gas, though. So there is um, – uh, when you, you can put this thing into velocity mode. And that's where this car really shines. Because this car is extremely aerodynamic. When it's in velocity mode, it retracts all of its mirrors and everything that's sticking out of the side of the car. So when you're when it's a track day, you can just take this thing out and go as fast as you want in velocity mode. It's really, really neat. So and their their top speed is 250.4 miles per hour. Bit quicker than I'm a grandpa's car over here. Well, oh, I'm sorry, my mirrors don't retract into the car. Yeah, you should be because this is the future, old man. How do you see behind you? You don't need to. You're on a track. Going straight? Whoever said you're going straight? You could be doing turns. This thing is I extremely not, I aerodynamic. I would not want to go like, not on turns. It ain't. Well, that's fair. It has a uh, it has a the three seats layout just like the F1, paying homage to the F1. Um, it is also reinforced with carbon fiber with a very thin, micro thin layer of titanium to help reinforce that carbon fiber. Mm. It's really, really 
really, really fast with 1,036 horsepower and the cherry on top, a two, 0.278 coefficient of drag. One of the fat, one of the lowest coefficient of drag of any car ever produced in the world. Meh. 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 This is not. That's not, not a meh car, my friend. This is one of the fastest, most aerodynamic car. It's literally they're literally using the aerodynamics, which put them out of business in the '90s in F1. When Williams came out with the aerodynamics, they said, you know, they're looking back at their history and they're like, we can do this too. And they make the McLaren Speedtail. Okay. Sure. You're entitled to your own opinion. I'll give you that. I'm sure it's a great car. I'm sure it really is. I'm sure it's a very purpose-built car for straight line speed and top acceleration. But when it comes to drivability and you're not just cruising around your neighborhood on the weekend, it's not meant for that. I will, and I think that's what most people look for in a sports car or hypercar. I will admit the McLaren, the the McLaren Speedtail does have a very large rear end, and it does um uh, make it a bit harder for driving on the day to day. I also have a very large rear end. Keep keep dreaming, bud. All right, but it also has a lot of very interesting driver capabilities. So it's still equipped with enough um uh, with enough uh safety features to be considered. Eh, roadish legal. See, the P1 ain't like that. <laughs> okay. If you're driving it hard and you crash, you're going to feel it. I mean, there's consequences to your actions. Well, the sad thing, I think the probably the biggest downside to the speed tail is that it has to be under the drive, the, the um, uh, show car policy, where you can only drive at 2,500 miles every year. Right. I believe it, it hasn't been crash tested in the U.S. because there's it not that not. many models out no, there. No, there's 106 that were made. Right. Don't know how many are alive today, but I hope... I would uh, assume most of them. I'd assume most as well. and uh, But, however, they have a lot of um, very interesting driver features also to save on weight. So they are the um, glass is, I love this word, electrochromic glass. What does that mean? That means it's self-tinting. So you can self-tint it to um, uh, help heal your eyes. You don't need um, uh, a sun visor anymore. Just with a flick of a button and the sun is out of your eyes. Oh. With electrochromic glass. I does your grandpa, does your P1 have electrochromic glass? I'll bet no. you have to start it with a crank on the front of the car, right? No, no. What you actually have to do is just put down the sun visor that weighs 0.2 pounds versus the electrochromate glass that weighs 20 pounds more. Yeah, but I know that. But would you really rather have a sun visor than electrochromic glass? I mean, if for weight saving reasons, yes. For drivability, no. You're right. It'd be so much cooler just to flick a button and then you're like screen tints. That was cool. That is very cool. That's kind of like BMW's like their new like paint job thing where you can flick a lever and then like it turns from black to white. Yeah, sadly it's not in production yet, but I hope it That's does. So cool. Though. I hope it gets into production. It's so awesome. Well, let's talk about Ferrari as it stands today. McLaren. That's what I said. <laughs> McLaren. McLaren. Hey, McLaren as it stands today. Um, what their future holds for them. Yeah, sure. So McLaren in its of itself is definitely going to a more road going, you know, future. They've yes. just come out with the Artura, which is their new, um, a basic model car. Yes. They've dr- they're trying to move from the, like the number system, the seven twenty six twenty five twenties, And they're trying to come out with here, this new Artura, something fresh, something new and something that looks pretty sporty. I think it resemble, 
it's starting to um, less resemble those curves that we know of a McLaren and go into more of an angular shape, like a, a little, Lamborghini. It's a little more edgy. It's kind of following a similar trend as like the NSX uh, Type S. It seems like the curvy sports cars of the twenty, like late 2010s are starting to get a little bit more edgy. I don't know if that's just for performance or if it's just like a look factor. Yeah, no, I think, I think there's probably some performance behind it, but I do believe that it's a lot of looks. I think they see the success that Lamborghinis had. Oh yeah, and they're they're trying to take off that styling. You can't you can cut your arm on Lamborghinis like cur- or edges. Yeah, I mean, but if you look at a Ferrari, that's not from there. No, it's really different. And uh, I, yeah, you can definitely see on the NSX. We can tie back to the car show, which we were there, and we saw the NSX that mid engine. Mm-hmm. Uh, that mid engine car was very sporty and very angular mm-hmm. to say the least. But I always like to think that McLaren was kind of a healthy medium of both angular and curves. And it wasn't like all these Italian sports car brands in that it used oh, V12s and oh, your electric, you know, blah, blah, blahs. And it's, you know, they stuck to like their roots. They, yeah. They stuck to V8s because they knew V8s and they added those hybrid motors to like increase performance. Increase their performance. It wasn't just a gag. Yeah, no. it was – everything on a McLaren is there because it needs to be. Yes. Uh, they're very conscientious of what they put in their cars. Yeah. it's um, uh, they, they also – their interiors are known for being pretty very bare bones. They're a little lackluster, you yeah. know, but that's what a race car is. Yeah, I mean, you don't – your door cards are made out of carbon fiber. Designed off a race car. It kind of reminds me of um, uh, maybe the Ferraris in the 50s and 60s because this is, you know, McLaren is branching out and um, – uh, they are making some really, really beautiful cars that I think will be very well revered in the future, as we can already see the F1 is. Yeah, no, F1 is no no doubt one of the best cars ever made. But I think McLaren still has some potential left in them. I think they do. And, and some people sleep on them. They say, I'm a, oh, it's just a... It's just maybe like a more expensive Ferrari or Lamborghini. I think the numbers beg to differ. If anything, it's a cheaper one, but you yeah. get better performance. It really is. I mean, some of course it's... Of course, you can probably find a cheaper Ferrari or a cheaper Lamborghini that's out there. Yeah, these are not these are not cheap cars per se, and some of them are really expensive. Like the Speedtail is worth like it's, over two million dollars. I say it's millions. And but you can also find a Ferrari or a Lamborghini worth over two million dollars. This is not like you know, this is not the most expensive car brand. But you can also find a, a McLaren that's worth that sits somewhere in the middle of that era which I think is what is the demographic they're trying to appeal to. As far as supercars go, I feel like they're moving ahead of both Lamborghini, Ferrari, Maserati. I think they're moving Don't out of... Don't you say Maserati in the same voice okay. as Lamborghini, All right. Ferrari, All McLaren. Right. Italian you... sports car brands. I think they're moving out of the sports car market, and they've moved out of the hypercar market, and they're starting to become their own sect of performance cars because they're attainable but they're not incredibly you know i guess insurmountable yeah i think we you were right about how everybody's already had their tried that hypercar some have stuck with it like pagani or bugatti but others just didn't really it It, didn't really work for them pick it up because most of those cars are made in a deficit anyways yeah it's like bugatti has been notorious for being they lose like two mil on each devo yeah it's it's insane because of just how much money go, gets sunk into those cars. And these are these are businesses above yes. all. You know, they don't have some uh, big cash cow, except for Ferrari, yeah. um, which is to them uh, like 
to really help him out from behind. Right. But and I mean neither does McLaren. McLaren actually doesn't have that big cash cow either. There's they're a racing team uh, ahead and they just sell road cars on the side. Well, and since Can-Am has been long gone now, but I'm so glad to see McLaren is still in racing. They're still holding on to their roots. They definitely still on their roots. The new McLaren Elva, which is a big big homage to the M1A. Yes. If you look at it and the M1A next to each other, they look almost identical. I know it's not Charlie's favorite because it doesn't have a windshield. But. Yeah, no, I think that's dumb. But, uh, I mean, I I always love when car manufacturers know what they are and who they're gonna be. Yeah, it's it's. A, I think like sometimes a car manufacturer might just like be all over the place, and it, it's it's much better to have um a, a car manufacturer that does like a few things great than one that does a whole bunch of stuff. Like, like if we're looking back to Jack Brabham, who we talked about very early in the episode, that went on to make the Cooper brand. Mini Cooper has been fighting its own identity for so long. Oh yeah. With, it's it's like, just tiring. I you can see it you can see him on the daily on the road and then you also see him participating in rally in like these mud these mud races in the middle of nowhere. Which is cool, but like their cars are just ever changing and it's just they don't quite know what makes a mini a mini. Yeah, they and, have. They've yet to come back to that like full mini, which in the which like in the late sixties and maybe early seventies really defined mini. But we see that with so many different. It doesn't even have to be like British car manufacturers. Look at Ford. The Mustang that we know today is so vastly different from the Mustang back in the sixties. Totally different. I mean, this is just a trend of car manufacturers. They try to adapt and evolve into the coming times, which is smart as a business. I will give them that. But not knowing where you come from and where you should be going is not a business aspect. Yeah, and I mean, although it is smart to branch out as a business, if you branch out and do it like half on half and you don't like fully commit to it, then it's not going to be good. It's just not going to turn the profits you want. Yeah. Because, I mean, I think now more than ever, car reviewers are actually giving more of their um, uh, full opinion. We've yet to like, have have a car to review, yeah. but like you know, a car is going to be the second most expensive thing you buy usually in your life. So you'd want to know as much as you can about it. As the population gets more intelligent and as car viewers get more frank, they're going to tell the people what they think about these cars. The thing is, I think car buying in the past five years has evolved so much. Oh through yeah, this chip sort sorted or shortage through the pandemic. Buyers are trying to get more information on their cars before they purchase them, which is great. It's an amazing thing. It's what everyone should be doing. They should have been doing that before, but I think that now that resources are more readily available, we're going to be able to see people making more educated decisions about their cars. Yeah, more educated buyers will lead to more to what will lead to car designers to be make more ed- educated cars, stuff and that people want. It's going to allow brands like McLaren not only to continue what they're doing, but to also cater to the audience. Yeah, which is what you need to do as a manufacturer. And I think they've been doing it really well. Their their audience is really great, and you don't hear like a lot of complaints about like McLaren like issues. I, I hear very little. The only thing I've ever heard bad about McLarens is like one model year where the hood latch like didn't work quite right. Yeah, and then you see Ferraris like on fire the dealership. Yeah, they're on fire and then you see a Lambo that took like split in half <laughs> like because it ran into a fence. Or you see like a Lambo that like went over a pothole and now it's like a crack da- dash. Yeah. Or your Bugatti that melted because it ran so high. <laughs> I mean, 
McLaren's always been a quality brand, and we appreciate all that they've done for both racing, for production cars, for hypercars. They are one of the few brands that can define the industry. Quality speaks volumes, especially in the supercar and hypercar market, where that's something that's really hard to come by. Yes. And I think they do it in a way that is really unique, really intelligent, and I think is just makes them stand out above all else. I'm so glad that they have followed the laws that have been set out by Bruce McLaren all those years ago, even with him being tragically killed so young, they have been able to capture his dream without him. They really have. They've, uh, it, I think this is probably one of like those corporate takeovers that has like been actually really beneficial to the company. It's been a rare case because mostly corporate takeovers in the car industry go very poorly. Yeah. You can see it like so often, especially in American yes. car brands, but this is, this is something really special. And, They've uh, they've held on to their roots. You know they're still in F one. They're the second longest continuous F one team. Second most winning F one team as well. Yeah, they've uh, they've been in there the second longest and the second most winning. So they've de- they've definitely had their fair share of wins and I'm a F one prominence. And I'm I'm glad to see them sticking it out even though they're not doing great this year, no. especially in, in their newest race, which I watched. And oh my god, that was that was really sad to be a McLaren fan. Yeah, yeah, but you know. Maybe we'll be on the come up soon. You know, yeah, it's just we'll the see. first. It's the first race. You can never tell. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm. Uh, well, we really enjoy learning about McLaren this week. I yeah, I was really excited. I've always heard their name everywhere, but I've never really known their history, and this was a real change of pace. Yeah. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, we enjoyed it very much. So creating this for you. Yeah. The research was a lot of fun, and we're and I think we presented it in a way that we taught you a, little, a thing or two. All right. If you have any suggestions for future episode ideas, please let us know. Uh, you can DM us on our spot or on our Instagram, the Speed Demons Podcast, mm-hmm. or uh, feel free to shoot any of us a personal DM. Uh, let us know. But thank you guys so much for listening, and uh, have a great day or night. Yeah, thank you guys for watching. Mm-hmm.